Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. My guest is passionate about comedy and has pursued it in a career that spans 70 years. He has 25 Emmy nominations, three Emmy Awards plus Television Critics Association Awards, NAACP Image Awards, Golden Globes, the Directors Guild Award, the Producers Guild, Band of the Year, and a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. George, wow. Yeah. George Slaughter, the creator of Laugh-In, author of Still Laughing, A Life in Comedy, available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places, and now available as an Audible audiobook. For everything about George, go to georgeslaughter.com. And George, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. That's quite an introduction. I had to do it. You're quite, quite the... About three different people. <laughs> you're quite the accomplished man. Maybe I actually did all of that stuff. Yes, you, know? you did. <laughs> I out of jail. <laughs> when did you... I'm sure you've gotten this question, but I have to ask it. When did you first realize you were funny? In the sixth grade, uh, we did a production of Jack and the Beanstalk, and I played the giant, and I had to be at the top of a ladder and bring a chicken down. <laughs> and the chicken relieved itself all over my green tunic. And it was a terrible thing, but the audience did laugh. And I heard that laugh, and it was seductive. So I've been working my way through chicken droppings ever since. <laughs> <laughs> I ever really heard a big, big laugh. You know? is, it, is it seductive or addictive or both in that case? You mentioned seductive. Seductive way to make a living. You know, it's the best <laughs> in the world. Second best feeling in the world. How do you remember everything? I mean, I can't remember yesterday yet you were able to write this memoir and do an audio version as well. How do you, how do you remember it all? Well, what happened was I would sit in the office and I would just tell stories and I would recollections and things that I'd done. And then Mark DeBose, who worked for me for a long time, would type all of those notes and put them together into sections and send them to John Max, who would distill what we were collecting and omit everything that was not going to be in the book. And there were a number of things that just weren't going to get into the book, which at the suggestion of Mrs. Slaughter. <laughs> probably a lawyer or two. Part of, career, part of my life has been colorful. I mean, I worked in Vegas for a long time. Yeah, I want to talk about that because we're based in Vegas. So, yeah, you, you booked Ronald Reagan before he was president. That's right. And it was a, before he was before he was a politician. Yeah, before he was a politician or a governor or any of that stuff. You booked him. Tell us a little bit about your background in Las Vegas. How did you get involved with booking people in Las Vegas? Well, uh, I was working at Ciro's, which was a nightclub on the Sunset Strip, and I started booking comedians into Ciro's, and then that expanded up to the Frontier Hotel in Vegas. And I just knew all the people, knew all the acts, and uh, had relationships with a lot of them from the time I'd spent at Ciro's. And uh, so I just started booking them. And, uh, and it, was, it, was, it was very exciting because they were outrageous. And the events that happened in Vegas was outrageous. And it's a large part of my uh, warm and wonderful memory book. Not all of it is uh, included in the book, fortunately. <laughs> Unfortunately. Well, I think part of it is, too, that Las Vegas, it was a certain period of time where Las Vegas was not run by corporations. So you had a little bit more fun, I think, in those days, booking and dealing with people. Well, yeah, yeah. It was memorable, though. Yeah. It, was, uh, it was run by 
some very colorful people. Yes. <laughs> and I survived. <laughs> Those colorful people are now immortalized in the Mob Museum here in Las Vegas. So I think that works well. Well, the Mob Museum is an unflattering term, you know. It was a collection of characters. Yes, exactly. Colorful characters. Colorful characters, that's good. But that doesn't work. Colorful characters, museum versus mob museum. Seems to yeah, work. I, I wouldn't want to be responsible for calling it the mob museum. <laughs> it wasn't really a mob as such. There were individuals. Each hotel had a select number and collection of individuals, all of whom were colorful. And I knew all of them, you know. And so it was a large part of my career. And when I wanted to marry Jolene, she said to me she wouldn't marry me because I'd be dead before I was 30 with the people I was with and known. And everything. So I said, I'll lose them. She said, you'll never lose those people. And it took me a year and a half to sever, to sever a lot of those colorful collections. That I, but I them because they were indeed colorful and I survived all of that. You did. And uh, you still have a little color in you, which is good. You haven't gone pale from dealing with the colorful people. So I'm alive from having a build. Not everybody, you know, no, uh, survived true. those people. True. Uh, you could have ended up, at, you know, at the bottom of Lake Mead, but, you know, that's another story for another time. So, yes. Last Frontier yes. Hotel. Yeah, Last Frontier Hotel, which is where you booked a lot of the acts. Were you surprised that when you made the transition to producer and creator? Because I think if you mention your name to most people, George Slaughter. They think of laughing more than your entire career, even though you've, you've done so much. And I want to also talk a little bit about the comedy center that you're involved in as well. But for now, when you decided to create laughing, this was at a certain time when it was very different. Your, your decision to do it was a little crazy in those days because the networks looked at you and they said, well... And as I remember the story, you were very busy with what was the pre-Grammy Awards shows, and they wanted you to keep doing it. And you said, well, I'll do it one more year if you'll let me do this thing that is different. See, so much of my career is, is the result of accidents, you know? And uh, I've been doing the Grammy Awards. Before it was the Grammy, it was called The Best on Record. And uh, uh, we couldn't really get anybody to do it because nobody knew what it was. So we had to go to different locations to tape each winner, and uh, and that worked, and that became the best on that became the Grammy Awards, and they wanted me to do it for one more year, and I said I'll do it if you let me do one show my way with no interference. That's a difficult thing to sell to a network today. It's impossible, but then it was just oh, difficult, yeah. and so they could do that, and the result of that was me collecting all of these funny people that I'd spent so much time with and putting them all into one show, and that became laughing. How did you decide on Rowan and Martin? Accident. See, everything in the book, everything about me. It's an accident. Uh, <laughs> not an accident. I wanted to do this show of all these young character people. And we sold it to time. Jim Ellers of Timex. He said he would buy it, but he needed a host. The show originally did not have a host. And so Rowan and Martin were a great nightclub act and uh, were straight. They were a little older. So I got them and they did these introductions. And, uh, and it worked, uh, um, but it was never originally designed with no host. It was just going to happen like an explosion. But putting Rowan and Martin in it, I think, helped give us some semblance of dignity and conformity. <laughs> Especially being in tuxedos, right, George? They would come into the opening, the closing, and do some <laughs> the news of the past, present, and the future. Right. And they wore tuxedos, and they were 
and it really worked. I don't know the show would have worked without them because they were so straight and they were older and the rest of that craziness just happened around them. And it was an accident. My sense of it too is that you got that old Vegas vibe from Rowan and Martin because of the tuxes and just the way they came across. Well, Vegas at that point was also colorful, you know, and, and fortunately because all the time I'd spent at Ciro's and then in Vegas, uh, I knew all of those acts and they had worked with all of them. I had relationships with all of them. So when we started to do Laugh-In, we didn't have any money and uh, I sold it because it was cheap. <laughs> I had this collection of all these young character people and uh, we could we didn't have any money to book guest stars. So as a matter of fact, the first year, I think, of, of Laugh-In, we just stopped people in the hall coming back from the Johnny Carson show. <laughs> stopped them in the hall and say, would you like to do Laugh-In? John Wayne said, I'm not going to do that show with those crazy people. We put that here. Accident. See, if we can treasure and celebrate our accidents, we have a richer life. And I've had a bunch of them. That's true. Most people who have had accidents end up suing, but you actually prospered with a career. Oh, yeah. Well, there's humor in everything. See, yes. there's humor in everything we do well. You know, more so, you know, in some activities now, it's funnier than others. But uh, we should celebrate the accidents. We, accident is not an accident, it's an opportunity. And uh, certainly I've seized, I've had enough accidents <laughs> that I've seized those opportunities. I like your philosophy. I, I had it on my office wall for a long time, the quote, you're only young once, but with humor, you can be immature forever. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. You know, uh, uh, uh. You're waiting to watch. When a man's walking down the street, that's not funny. But when he's walking down the street and you see a kid with a pile of snowballs, it's starting to be funny. When you see a top hat on him, it's going to be funny. And then, you know, But the build-up to it makes it funny. Just throwing the snowball at the hat doesn't isn't funny until you build up this dignified guy and all of that. It's all set up. We must laugh. When a baby's born, you don't have to teach it how to eat, sleep, do a laugh. It just naturally laughs, and it's part of our culture. It's part of our physical well-being. And if we can sustain that, you know, we can uh, survive our elections. No, because I have, I have opinions on that that will get you canceled. <laughs> Do you think that your sense of humor has the word, what is the word? Not changed, but is your perspective with humor different at, the, at your current age versus 30 years ago, 40 years ago, or 50 years ago. Is there pretty much the same? You could even possibly go 60 years ago. <laughs> Humor's the lubricant. You do, you, you, when you're laughing, you know, it just, it just feels better. And uh, as a matter of fact, the ultimate agony, the ultimate pain causes you to laugh when it hurts worse than anything could hurt. You know, I don't believe it hurts as bad. <laughs> Laughter, laughter is our lubricant. It's our panacea. And uh, uh, we must, we must laugh. And, uh, we jokes, uh, some of them we elect. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You know, let's, not, let's not go there because I'll get you canceled. <laughs> How did you convince Jolene to marry you? Was it with humor or was it with looks or a combination of both? She said she would not marry me because the people I was hanging out with, I'd be dead before I was 30. Correct. Yeah, she mentioned she said, that. I don't have to hang out with them anymore. She right. says you'll never lose those people. And it took me about, I severed all of those connections. Right. I did know some colorful people from my working at Ciro's and at the Frontier in Vegas. Sure. Vegas was different than it is now. Right. And uh, 
So I did. I severed all of those connections, and uh, they would occasionally still come up to me and face it. Uh, Guido said to tell you his hello, right? And you'd turn around, whatever <laughs> it was. It was it was very colorful time in my life that I cherish. And Jolene, Jolene is the best thing that ever happened to me because without Jolene, I'd have been taking a dirt nap years ago, you know. So what did she see in you? Was it your sense of humor? Was it your stunning good looks? What what uh, drew her to you? Multiple choice. It could have been either one of them. <laughs> it, well, it was uh, Jolene. Jolene was uh, uh, was the queen of the Los Angeles County Fair, and she won all kinds of beauty contests. And then one of the one of the prizes was an engagement at the Sands Hotel. And when she arrived, they found out she was seventeen years old, and so uh, she had to have a duenna. And she had to come to and go back and forth to the Sands Hotel. And her duenna was Felicia Farr, who was married to Jack Lemon, Felicia Farr, movie star. And Jolene had to come to and back and forth to the Sands Hotel with Felicia was her guidance. And a man by the name of Carl Cohn, who kind of hovered over Jolene and kept her out of trouble. But Jolene was 17 years old, and uh, but she was gorgeous and uh and then she, from there, she went on and did Gunsmoke and, uh, and, and then met Ernie Kovacs, who fell in love with her and featured her as his leading lady. And she never knew what she was going to do. He never told her. She'd just show up at the studio and Ernie would have her do <laughs> Ernie Kovacs loomed large in our relationship. But what was the, what, what was, what, what sealed the deal? What, what sealed the deal, George, in terms of her deciding to, to marry you, though? In other words, why you as opposed to Jack Lemon or somebody else? Of course, he was married at the time. Well, but Well, first of all, I told I told all the guys, because Jolene was there, and, and everybody was hitting on Jolene, and I told everybody, I said, you can talk to her, just don't hit on her, because she's going with a really ugly guy, and you could get hurt. So, <laughs> and I don't understand it. All these guys talked to me, but nobody ever asked me out. I said, I'll ask you out. <laughs> they get hurt, right? And so... Uh, I asked her out, and then I asked her in. And, uh, <laughs> it's the best thing, because we're married, you know, we're married a long time. We're married 65 years. That's incredible. Congratulations. You know, and uh, uh, she made my life. She gave me two wonderful, delightful, talented children and uh, made me respectable. <laughs> That's <laughs> possible. <laughs> I was colorful, but not respectable. <laughs> Not your both. Mary <laughs> Jolene got me an invitation to a lot of places I normally would never have been invited to. <laughs> now you're both respectable, and you know there you go. It works. And 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 I got twelve dollars in the bank. And yep. Two grandchildren. Excellent. Uh, <laughs> Do you stay in touch with any of the people from Laughing? Oh yeah. Oh sure. Well, Goldie Hawn, right? Lily Tomlin, Joanne Worley, Ruth Buzzy. It was a collection of young character people. And there was no place for them in television. You had guest stars and, and stars, but you didn't have any place for Goldie. Goldie was the, one of the brightest women ever, but we found out that she we could make her laugh, and then everything would disappear. So when Goldie would come on, Ruth Buzzy would make naughty, naughty sounds and whatever, <laughs> anything to bring. Goldie never had a chance to do anything straight. She's a very, very bright, brilliant woman, but easily to break up, you know, and so we would do anything to make her laugh. And Joanne was in the event. She was like an air raid siren. And Lily, <laughs> a different people. Lily would show up and she would be any one of 10 different characters, each one definable. And so we were fortunate to find these people who were not sought after in television at that point. There was no place for them. There was no place for 
you know, Edith Ann and all of those right. characters. Right. So we featured them. So, and it, it happened at a time when there was nothing else really going on that was exciting. And so these characters just started to appear and it caught on. Not for the first week, two weeks. NBC only bought it because they had nothing to put on opposite uh, Eight is Enough and, and Gunsmoke and uh, Lucy. And uh, so they bought it to just have something to put on the air until they got a show ready. So by the third week, People were coming by saying, what is going on in there? Right? <laughs> and uh, Dick were part of it because they presented these crazy people as if they weren't crazy. And uh, accident, you've got to look at accidents as an opportunity rather than an accident. And if you can cherish the accidents that surround you, you can find some fun. Were you surprised, George, at the success of Laugh-In? And again, there's so much more to your career and we can't cover it all. But I was just wondering if you were surprised at the success of Laugh-In. Probably, yes, I think I was surprised because nobody, they had nothing to put on opposite Lucy and Gunsmoke, mm-hmm. put on by accident, the show cost nothing, and it had no promotion, so they just put it on until they could get a real show ready, and by the third week, people said, what's going on in there, you know, and stopping people in the hall that refused to do the show and then airing their refusal, so accident <laughs> played a large, a large part, but accident had figured it figured large in my whole life. Uh, <laughs> I, accident is not an accident. It's it's a, it's a, it's an opportunity, and uh, I've had a lot of those opportunities. When did you get involved with the National Comedy Center? I mentioned it earlier without giving the name, and and but I want to talk a little bit about because it's located in, in Jamestown, New York. Journey Gunderson called me and she said, "I'm doing this museum in Jamestown." I said, "Yeah." She said. Could you send me, uh, do you have a couple of things from Laughing we could use? And I said, yes. And so I sent her, she said, this is wonderful. She said, do you have anything else? <laughs> I said, hey, I've got a warehouse full of else. I mean, you know, yes. So I started sending her these different collections of comedy that I'd done. She said, this is wonderful. And they, so I then became involved with her and with the museum and then made a sizable donation to the museum, thinking that there needed to be a place celebrating the comedians because the comedians are the panacea. The comedians are what will help us survive, including now. I mean, when you realize that we're in trouble, but it's, there's things about it that are funny. So yeah. uh, savoring those moments, because the best feeling, well, the second best feeling in the world is, you know, the laughter. What and, was the uh, first one? Well, let's not go there because I'll get <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it's easier to laugh than the other one. <laughs> and you can laugh at any you can laugh at any you can laugh at any age, right? <laughs> you gotta you gotta introduce or uh, celebrate the the uh, accident, right? And look at the accident as an opportunity rather than a setback. And I've had a lot I've had a lot of those opportunities. I mentioned and, the National Comedy Center, and there's a theater named in honor of you and Jolene there, and it's yes. yeah, and it. It to features do the enormity of the comedy collection that I gave them of all the comedy shows that I'd done. It also had a lot to do with the large donation I made. Why in the world I did that? Because you know I just felt there was should be a place celebrating the people who made us laugh. And now that collection is vast. They have all of the all of the comics have sent them excerpts of their best material. So when you go through the museum in Jamestown. You find uh, everything from Don Rickles to uh, Snoopy White. I mean, all of these comedians are proud to be in that museum. Sure. And I thought it's important that we have one place celebrating laughter. And uh, 
That's it. And, and we I just know that, I know that was Lucille Ball's hometown, but I'm wondering whether it would have made more sense to have the National Comedy Center either in Hollywood or New York or it's a major metropolitan area. Say when you said it made more sense, making sense is not what got me out of the valley. Well, uh, that's true. Yeah. Me, yeah, made that, my career opportunity. In your case, it was nonsense rather than sense. Literally, where they were going to build this a theater. It's a huge theater. And it's named the George and Jolene National Comedy Center, right. which I'm very, very proud. And it'll be there after I'm not, you know. So it, I feel even more so now where we are politically in, in the world, that it is important that we retain laughter. And we just lost Norman Lear, which is a major loss. But what he left us is great laughter with Archie Bunker and Maud and all in Sanford right. and Son. Right. And celebrate his career as one of the main people who helped make us laugh. And we must laugh. Uh, when something hurts more, so worse than anything can hurt, you, you laugh. You go, I don't believe that. And laughter is the panacea. You mentioned in, in the previous interviews and, and in other uh, venues that the you were arrogant when you were running Laugh-In. And theoretically, you're arrogant today, but you're really arrogant then because you were with, with the share that you had in terms of ratings and just everything going on at the time, were you able to listen to anybody for advice in those days? In other words, was there a network official you respected or was there a peer that you listened to for, for advice either on how to run Laugh-In or to do something different? Well, listening was never one of my talents or abilities <laughs> I perfected. Uh, uh, um, but you must listen if you're going to feed back on the culture. Uh, when you think about it, where Laugh-In happened, Laugh-In begot the Smothers Brothers and all kinds of other shows, but right. the the success of Laugh-In uh, had everybody in awe because there was no way. It was unknown people in a impossible time period. And when that succeeded, it promoted other adventures because la comedy comedy is a worthwhile <laughs> worthwhile activity. You must laugh. Uh, but you were listening. You were listening to the culture, no doubt. But were were there any individuals in your orbit that you listened to for advice during those years of laughing? Well, the comics. I mean, uh, we were not subjected to a lot of parental supervision because <laughs> what happened was they put it on because they had nothing else to put on opposite Lucy and Gunsmoke, and so we put it on, and they weren't going to air it, and so we said, okay, we'd change it, and then we wouldn't change it. We'd go on the air, and it's. George, what did you do last night? You know what you said? Yes. And we would say things that were outrageous. And what happened, since there was nothing going on opposite Lucy and Gunsmoke, uh, the audience kind of discovered it. And by the third week, we were up getting a big rating. Well, I'm arrogant now, but you should have seen me that long ago with the 60, you know, with the... <laughs> well, that's, huge... that's to my point. Did you, was there an individual that you listened to or went to for advice? A man, man by the name of Herb Schlosser. And uh, he said, uh, he was the one that said, we've got nothing to put on opposite Lucy and Gunsmoke. And uh, so we tried this out, and he put it on the air reluctantly because they had censors. I mean, censors were, we had, at one point, we had five censors doing nothing but just watching us. And while we were saying to one censor, we couldn't say this, we were saying something else that we couldn't <laughs> say. But we, broke, we broke all kinds of barriers. And... Uh, and once those barriers were lifted, you know, you came all in the family and Sanford and Son, Maud, all those shows that were edgy, uh, but you didn't have anything edgy at that point. I, I'm proud of that, but I'm aware of the fact that it wasn't me. It was the accident 
and, and celebrating accidents and then being married to Jolene, which meant that I was socially acceptable. Well, but marrying Jolene was not an accident, so that part that part we have to say. Pretty much an accident. Pretty <laughs> <laughs> much an accident. She said, she said, uh, she said, I don't understand. All these guys talk to me. Nobody asks me out. I said, I'll ask her out. And so then I would ask her out, and I, she didn't really understand that I well, told all these Well, she's been stuck with you all these years, so I guess it worked out. But the Guys, I told her, if they hit on Jolene, they could get hurt. And yeah. so they all talked to her but didn't ask her out. I was the ugly That's guy. It. That was <laughs> the guy that did it. Yeah, exactly. If there's one thing that you want people to take away from the book itself and now available as an audible audio as well, what would you say that was? The, the necessity to laugh. Uh, laugh, you can survive anything. You can tell the, you know, uh, uh, the emperor was not very well endowed. With- <laughs> yeah. It's not just it's not just a luxury. It is a necessity. We must. That's the reason why losing Norman Lear today is a very sad event. However, it's always a bright side. What he leaves us with is Sanford and Son and Maud and all in the family and all of those shows that were edgy. They were uh, Archie Bunker was an offensive human being, but funny. And so we've got to look around around us and look at our friends and look at our life. And realize that there's always the element of humor in there. Mm-hmm. Celebrate that and have a good time. And it's the second best feeling you can have. And I talk about the first best feeling and you'll be off the air. Yeah, <laughs> before, before I let you go, what what are you working on these days? You finished a memoir. And again, it's called Still Laughing, A Life in Comedy. And it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the usual places, and Audible audiobook now, too, as well. So what, what was that like recording your Audible audiobook? Did you do it well, in stages over a period of yeah, a couple of months? Yeah, that was the finding, finding. I I couldn't do it myself because my my eyesight now is not what it once was. You know, I could still see Jolene, but that's pretty much it. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, it was an adventure. See, see, you can't look at failure as a, as an end. Failure is a, a, a thing you stop by on the, on the way to success. Failure is, gives you opportunities, and I think. I think when you read the when you read the book, you'll see in there there are all a- anecdotes and all episodes in my long and shady career. <laughs> shady, I like that. That <laughs> disappointment, disaster into comedy, and right. uh, uh, and that I think the only thing I can suggest to anybody that uh, you know is interested, look for funny, and you can find funny everywhere. The guy walking down the street, funny, funny, and. Uh, it's funny, not just, I don't mean just in Washington now. <laughs> it's, it's difficult to laugh about what's going on in Washington. However, it's not impossible. I think that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been George Slaughter, the creator of Laughing and the author of Still Laughing, A Life in Comedy, available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places, and now available as an audible audiobook as well. So for everything about George, go to georgeslaughter.com. And George, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me, and uh, I hope I don't get you canceled. No, you won't. (laughs) And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.